0: You can leave us a one time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Acts chapter 2. And as this is my normal way of doing things, I'm going to bring you up to speed and remind you of several things laying a foundation. Uh, in order that we'll kind of uh, have a better understanding of what is uh, taking place as we'll be looking at this in chapter 2. So beginning at verse 1, chapter 2, the book of Acts, reading to verse 4, Luke writes, "...when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house." Where they were sitting, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. when I got saved i i I, I got saved in the middle of a of a of a movement, a revolution and and when I got saved. I asked the lord if he would if he would would fill me if he would do a work in my life uh, i didn 't want to ever go back to what I was. I wanted to be one who was walking in the newness of of life and all and so as a, a brand new convert, somebody who had had really little experience in terms of ever hearing Bible studies or teachings, naturally, I asked the Lord to give me all that he had uh, for me and and so very early i I became acquainted with a, a term being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're going to be looking at that today in chapter two here in the book of Acts because it is the uh, day of Pentecost that this occurs. I remember I was seated after a Bible study. We used to go to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa for the Bible studies, and at the end of the Bible study, my friends and I would all jump in a car and return, and we'd come back to a place in a house one of my friends was uh, renting in La Habra, and and we would go to that house, and we would sit, because we were hippies, we would sit on the floor and uh, in a circle, and as we would do so, we would hold hands and pray, and, uh, and we would, uh, after we did that, we would begin to sing songs that we had learned, and, and then after that, we would speak with one another about the Bible study we had just gone to. What did you get out of the study? What did the Lord speak to your heart And that became the early history. That was what I was raised in. That was Christianity. It it wasn't going to church on a Sunday and then doing what I want during the week. It was a a seven-day-a-week kind of thing. It was every day, read the Word, every day, pray, every day, fellowship, every day, do what the Lord would have you to do, and then go to Bible studies during the week, maybe in a Monday evening or whenever, a Thursday night, go to church on Sunday. Those are the kinds of things that we did And that was normal Christian life because I wanted more of God. I wanted as much of God as He was willing to pour into me. I still remember hearing this term, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the way it first came to my my ears was very simple. I was like three weeks old in Christ, and uh, we were at the house as we normally were. And I was seated on a couch, and there was a guy who was leaning against the wall off to my right. I still can picture him as he was quietly speaking in a language That I'd never heard and somebody happened to be seated next to me and I said what is that guy doing and he said oh he was baptized in the Holy Spirit tonight I said really and what is that I'd never heard of that what is that he says well the Holy Spirit came upon him and gifted him with the spiritual gift I said and that is what he said it's the gift of tongues because the guy was speaking quietly in the language I couldn't understand and so I go oh that was my first experience of hearing even those, those phrases. And, and the fellow who was seated next to me got up, walked away, and somebody else came and sat next to me where this other guy had been seated. And he turns and looks. I mean, the guy's only six feet away, and he's looking at him, and he's quietly speaking. And this guy seated next to me on the couch turns to me and says, what's he doing? Well, now I'm the Bible teacher. <laughs> well, he's, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit today. What's he doing? He's speaking in tongues. He goes, tongues, what's that? I said, I think it's Hebrew. So that was my first <laughs> explanation. I had no cue, no clue about that at all. But I, 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 whatever it was that the Lord did for him, I wanted that for myself. I wanted the fullness of the Spirit. And should the Lord gift me with spiritual gifts as he does... I wanted him to do that. I wonder how many in this room still hunger for that. I did, and I still do. God, fill me with your spirit. Use me for your glory. May your gifts be evident in my life and all of that. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the Christian church, the day of Pentecost, which is today today. Uh, it's being celebrated today. This is 50 days after Easter, after the resurrection. We actually are looking at the baptism of the Spirit and the the birth of the church on its actual birthday today as we go through these verses. And so as we look at this, um, last time we were together, I spent time sharing with you how that Jesus had commissioned His men. He had said you're to go out into all the world and you're supposed to make disciples. You're to evangelize is what he was saying. You're, you're to, uh, to encourage people to converge. In, and, and when they've been converted, when they've come to faith in, in Jesus Christ, he said, you are to make them into uh, disciples by teaching them. And, and if they're actually disciples, we had looked at this, uh, as new believers, they would reveal their faith by obeying what they were taught. So, their hunger for the Word of God would reveal the reality of their conversion. A person who has no hunger for the Word of God has every right to wonder whether they're saved. You see, because a newborn babe desires the sincere milk of the Word, babies desire food, and a believer will desire God's Word. And so, their hunger for the Word of God reveals the reality of their walk with God, and even their conversion. So, by being taught and by their obedience to the Word of God, they were going to be able to grow spiritually. Now, these are people who are supposed to go out throughout the world preaching a gospel message. They're supposed to go beyond their borders. Many of them had never even really been much beyond, if at all, the borders of Israel. They, they didn't go into the whole world as a practice. Many people even in this room have never really been beyond their borders very much. Maybe you've gone to Arizona. Maybe you've gone to Nevada, Oregon or whatever, maybe gone into Tijuana, or, or, or you know, but never have gone throughout the world. And so it would be a new experience for even many of us in this room to actually travel somewhere into a new culture and to bring a message. And for them, it's the same. They, they had never really traveled that far. Perhaps some of them never had traveled at all. And for them to take this into the whole world is really an amazing command for them to be given. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth is the commission, right? How are you going to do that? They didn't have satellite, obviously. They didn't have social media or TV. They didn't have radio or printed material. How are they going to be able to take this message throughout all the world? Well, it began with a touch from God. God had touched their life and they had a powerful experience with him. They'd been saved. And being saved, they wanted others to be saved. That would be the starting point. It's like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14 when he, he had said, the love of Christ compels us. There was something within them, obviously. But the command was them for them to go. And the command was for them to love others. and And in going and loving others... Uh, that would compel them to do so, but it didn't necessarily mean that they'd be successful in their ministry. You see, they're going to be witnesses in a world that crucified the one they're speaking about. They're going to be going out taking a message of Jesus Christ who had been put to death. Now, in their personal experience, it wasn't that long ago that they had abandoned him. And Jesus, when he had been betrayed, and when they took him into, into custody there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had already forewarned them. He had already said to them, you're going to forsake me. And all of them had had rejected the notion that they would do that. But when it came down to it, they did. They all had forsaken him. They all had fled. And we've gone through enough of the Scripture as it pertains to that event to know that John ultimately and the Apostle Peter had gone in into the uh, courtyard where Jesus had been interrogated and all, and and that that Peter, while he was there, had uh, denied once again, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so you have some disciples, even when Jesus had resurrected, who were still hiding for for fear of the Jewish authorities. These are people that needed to, to be given some, some more um, uh, power. They needed to have of more confidence and and all. And, and they're not going to be able to take this message without without the power to do that. They're not going to be able to be faithful without God providing for them. They're, they're going to go out and they're going to preach that Jesus was crucified, that He that He died, that He was buried. But they're also going to go out and speak concerning the fact that He rose from the dead. And, and they're going to go out and they're going to they're going to be uh, calling people to repentance. They're they're going to be preaching a message of remission of sins, and, and and they're going to be his witnesses. That's what he wants them to be. They're going to speak concerning his works and his teachings. They're going to be witnesses of his resurrection. They're going to preach Bible truth, and they're going to demonstrate that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecy related to Messiah, that he was the one who was written of in the law and the prophets as well as the Psalms. But as they do that, they're going to encounter spiritual and physical obstacles, How are they going to be successful? They're going to be made successful because they're going to be enabled to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're going to accomplish this work by God's power. In chapter 1 here in the book of Acts, in in verse 4 and 5, it reads, being assembled together with them, he, speaking of Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's already told them this is going to take place. And he told them that they were to wait. Now, when he says wait for the promise, that word wait simply means to await an event. They're to wait, because God is about to fulfill his promise. And so they've been told you need to wait. When it speaks of promise, that word promise is an announcement of divine assurance for good. One commentator said this word promise is used only of the promises of God. It often speaks for the thing promised and thus signifies a gift graciously given and not something that was secured by negotiation. So this promise is also referred to as a gift So later on, when the apostle Peter was speaking of the promise, he referred to this promise really as a gift. Acts 2.38, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10.45, the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. So, the sending of the Holy Spirit is God's assurance of good for those He loves, and it's a gift that He graciously gives to the one who repents and believes. As I mentioned to you, God had given this promise various times over hundreds of years. You see it in the Old Testament, Joel 2, 28 and 29, afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions even on my men servants and maid servants i will pour out my spirit in those days ezekiel 36:27 i will put my spirit within you cause you to walk in my statutes you will keep my judgments and do them now jesus made reference to these promises as he was ministering to his men john 15:26 when the helper comes whom i shall send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will testify of me. That's why we need the power of the Spirit, because it's the work of God within us who's testifying of him to us as we present him to other people. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend, perform his work, but afterward, he would depart. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In the book of Judges, in chapter 16, verse 20, when Delilah, who was the woman who was used against Samson, uh, Delilah called Samson, she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before, shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's why David in Psalm 51, verse 11 said, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So the promise is that the Spirit would remain with them and would be in them. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. So Jesus is having them go out. In chapter one, verse eight, you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth you shall be witnesses to me you shall witness my resurrection you shall witness that i am the savior of the world you shall witness that i am the judge who can grant forgiveness so god desires to communicate to man but he intends to do that through us so being his witness requires power and our lives become evidence of his presence and for that, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. That promise that he had made is fulfilled at Pentecost. So it says in verse 1 and chapter 2, the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Now, Pentecost is the second of three great Jewish feasts. There's also the Feast of Passover as well as the Feast of Tabernacles. Pentecost took place 10 days after Jesus' ascension, 50 days after after his resurrection. When you read your Bible, Pentecost, or this festival of Pentecost, commemorates at least two things. One, it commemorates that God, God's giving uh, the nation of Israel the law on Mount Sinai. He did so through Moses. And then secondly, it was uh, also uh, when the first fruits of the harvest were offered to God. And it was a joyful time because the people were remembering God's goodness towards them, and and because it was celebrated at this time of the year, travel would be much easier. That would mean that this particular festival would attract the largest number of pilgrims from foreign lands. It's been estimated that on this particular day, there were some 3 million people in the city of Jerusalem, which is huge, a great amount of people. So, this gave opportunity to reach the greatest amount possible, and that's the day that the church officially is birthed. Now, as we're looking at this, I'm going to highlight uh, three basic things for you. One, I'll highlight the attitude of the 120 who are waiting in a united way uh, for the promise, and then I'm going to uh, highlight the giving of the Holy Spirit, which fulfills the promise, and then the effect on the lives of believers as well as non-believers. And so, as we approach this, 10 days have passed since Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus had said to them, you need to wait. And in obedience, that's what they're doing. They're waiting. But as they wait, they're in an attitude of anticipation. And they're in unity. And as they're in unity and waiting, they're expecting to receive the promise that God has given. They're in one place. They're in one accord, and it's this one place, one accord, that's where the promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, when you look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, it tells us there were around 120, and it also tells us what they were doing. They were continuing in one accord in prayer and supplication. So their hearts were set on one thing, and that is to receive the promise. They're unified. They have a spirit of anticipation, they're waiting on the Lord. They put aside self-seeking, and they're anticipating God fulfilling the promise that He made. Now, this unity of the, the disciples isn't always uh, the case. It wasn't as we went through Scripture very often as we've gone through Mark and, and looked at uh, uh, the different things concerning the the uh, apostles and all, they, were, they weren't always united. Very often they were arguing, and it seems that one of the greatest arguments that they had more than one time was who's the greatest and all of that. So we see that these are people who were still prone to acting in a, in a way that actually did not encourage unity but actually encouraged disunity. But now they have a spirit of anticipation. They're in obedience, waiting for the Lord, and they're praying and seeking God they're not walking in the flesh, if you will, right now. They're united. Now, Jesus had commanded them, remain in Jerusalem till you receive power. So there they are praying, waiting with anticipation. They want to receive this promise. And three things are contributing to the reception. Three things will also contribute to us walking in the power of the Spirit. One of it is obedience. They were commanded to tarry, to not depart, and they obeyed, and they waited. Two, there was a spirit of unity there. They were no longer selfishly seeking personal benefit. And then three, they had this hunger, this expectation, and they were thirsting for the Lord. And so as they're there, they're all in one accord, in one place, verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven. As of a rushing, mighty wind, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The promise is being fulfilled. The sound of a rushing, mighty wind is heard. It's a roar, is what it is. Literally, it's the roar of a powerful gust of wind, like a mighty and violent windstorm. Now, when it speaks of wind in this way, uh, wind has at least two images we can look at in Scripture. In the Bible, wind can be used in a variety of ways, and one of the ways that the word wind is used Refers to the Spirit. Remember a conversation that Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus had approached Jesus by night, told him that he and his friends were aware that Jesus was more than simply a rabbi. He's performing works and miracles. And and, uh, Jesus responds. It's found in John 3, 5 through 8. Jesus answered and said to him this. He said, Born of the Spirit. So he uses wind as a symbol of the powerful Holy Spirit, but it is also used as a symbol of the breath of life. All the way back in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, chapter 2, verse 7, when God created Adam, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The breath of life speaks of wind. And so wind is used as a symbol of the breath of life. That would reveal that the Holy Spirit brings power and life to the 120. Now, as this is taking place, verse 3, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, tongues of fire. That would be a visible phenomenon. Illustrating what was occurring, they literally saw fire in the shape of tongues resting on each of them. In the ministry of John the Baptist, John had spoken of what Jesus would do. In Matthew 3, verse 11, John had said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He Will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was one that outwardly revealed repentance from sin, but Jesus' baptism is of the Spirit and inwardly purifies and gives power. Jesus' spirit, Holy Spirit baptism, will inflame with love for God and others. And that baptism bestows spiritual gifts and propels believers to live a life that is holy. You see, in this passage, fire would speak of two things. One, it demonstrates that the Lord is present. In Exodus 3, verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So that fire will represent the presence of God, but also it speaks of purification. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah speaks, One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And so it speaks of the presence of the Lord. It also speaks of purification for service. So the Spirit coming upon obedient, expectant believers purges. The Spirit produces a holy disciple, one set apart from sin, one set apart from evil. Because we can only live a holy life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Galatians 5.16, Paul said it like this, I say then walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You want to live a powerful holy life? You need the power of the Holy Spirit working within you. You need to die to sin, die to your flesh, and be open to God's power working within you. So the tongues of fire resting on each of them symbolizes ministry. They're to take the gospel to a world, a world that has a variety of languages. Remember in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel, God confounded languages. At that time, the world all spoke a single language, and they used the language to unify in opposition to God. And they went out and they built a tower. We know it as the Tower of Babel. Now, a lot of times people think of the Tower of Babel and they think of uh, kind of like a, uh, uh, an ignorant people. We have a tendency of thinking that over the years because evolutionary thought has invaded so many minds, we think, oh, they must have been really backwards back then, when in fact it hasn't been evolutionary, it's been devolutionary. We're not as brilliant as the first inhabitants. They hadn't gone through so much time of sin and and all the things that has actually made us less than what we originally were. And so during the Tower of Babel, they were not ignorantly thinking that they can build a, you know... one of the rock stars of our day, a stairway to heaven. They weren't doing that. They were building a tower that reached unto heaven. That's what the scripture says. What does that mean? You see, when I first got saved, I thought, wow, how backwards that they're building a a tower and they think they can clamber up. No, what it was is it's called a ziggurat. A ziggurat is an astrological tower. What they were doing is they were charting the stars, they stopped worship, worshiping the creator and began worshiping creation. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. And they became idolatrous. No, they were actually turning away from the command of God who said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And they decided to stay there and try to take a different path. And that's why God confounds their language. They were taking direction from stars and, and rejecting God. And they refused to leave They would not go out as he commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. And as a result, Genesis 11 verses 8 and 9 tells us that God confounded their language. It says the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That that is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confounded or confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So the tongues of fire serves to equip them to reach a world with a, a language that is unified in its praise and of God. Now notice in verse 3 how it says, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So this baptism unified and equipped them to work one task, to preach, to teach, to share. And each one received power, because God desires to use each one equally. This just will take one one sentence. There are no superstars. There were no special disciples. They were all to do the work of ministry. I think sometimes in our day, we uh, for a variety of reasons, it's one of the things I think about quite often for a variety of reasons. I think because there's such a lack of heroic figures in our society today, we have a lot of what we call anti-heroes, people who shouldn't really be regarded as being heroic at all, but in fact are regarded in that way. So what we do is we end up looking for somebody who can represent me and somebody I can use as a heroic figure, and instead of being devoted to Christ, I begin to be devoted to that heroic figure. We have to be careful with that. God wants to use each one of us. Not one of us is more special than the other. God will use you to whatever capacity you're willing to be used. He can take you and use you and reach people through you. It doesn't require somebody like me or somebody else like me. It it requires you just being obedient. See, so there are no superstars. There's only one superstar, and that's Jesus Christ. The rest of us are his servants, right? And so he wanted to do the work. There are 120 who are being filled with the Spirit. There are no superstars amongst them. There are those who will be used in different ways. But each one is to be used by God. And they're all filled, the Bible says to us. They're filled with the Spirit. Notice in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this fulfills that promise Jesus had made in in chapter 1, verse 8. And it fulfills John 16, verse 7, where he had said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away for if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. They were filled. That word filled means to be abundantly supplied. They were completely filled. This is the overflowing presence of God. Now in John seven thirty-seven and 38, Jesus had said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And so there they are, verse 4. They're overflowed with the Spirit. And notice verse 4. They spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Mark sixteen seventeen, Jesus had said, they shall speak with new tongues. Now what is that? I don't know. Let's keep going. No, the word tongues... The word tongues is the English translation of the Greek word glossa, and glossa speaks of a language. In in this case, it is an unlearned language. Somebody said that tongues is a spiritual gift from God that is supernaturally bestowed and acquired, and is therefore an unlearned language. It may be of human origin, an existing dialect, or a heavenly dialect, which is referred to as the tongues of angels. The language is one of praise to God and is directed to God and not to men. Tongues is a language of praise and worship that gives glory to God. Verse 11 gives us some insight into what they're saying, because if you look at the bottom there, it says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. Notice the wonderful works of God. So they're speaking and glorifying and magnifying God with unlearned languages, and they're giving God the glory. Notice again in verse 4, as the Spirit gave utterance, as the Spirit gave utterance. The Spirit didn't take over their vocal cords, but the Holy Spirit did as He inspired their speech. Now, as this is taking place, this loud sound, they're, they're undoubtedly pouring out from this room into the streets, It says in verse 5, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and, and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs and Chinoans and Ontarians and Pomonans. <laughs> it's right there in the Bible. Now, we hear... We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're drunk. They're full of new wine. So there are all these people. As mentioned, Jerusalem was filled with up to 3 million people, and they had come to celebrate Pentecost, and They heard the sound, more than likely the sound of this mighty rushing wind. Perhaps they heard the voices of the disciples. But as they they hear this, they gather, and, and it's confusing to them because everyone is understanding what is being said in their own language. Now, when you look at the list there, there are about 16 nations and regions represented. And they say in verse 11, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're hearing God being praised and God is being given glory and they're amazed and they're perplexed and and they're wondering what is this? It says that some were amazed and perplexed but others began to mock. Instead of arguing with the mockers, Peter spoke to those who were inquisitive. I think that's a very very important thing for us to do because they're asking a spiritual question. So they require A biblical answer. Sometimes people will try to explain the works of the Spirit of God by simply speaking of their own personal experiences. There's a validity to that. I mean, we speak of that which we've seen and heard. I understand that. But what Peter did is Peter gave a biblical answer. This is that, he says, which was spoken of by Joel the prophet who said. So the biblical answer is something he was prepared to give. Jesus had made those promises. He was aware of Scripture. Sometimes, and I've, I've read this in commentaries, older commentaries especially. Older commentaries who were written sometimes by people who didn't have a great acquaintance with the uh, the people of Israel in the ancient times or in the time of Christ. Sometimes they they just don't speak of it. The fact that that the children were raised with scripture many of them if not the majority of them during the time of Christ being well taught in scripture memorizing books of the bible they memorized the first five books of the bible these are people who the young people who are very biblical and very knowledgeable and that's why that's why the apostle peter just says no wait a minute the book of joel in chapter 2 verse 28 and 29 says this he refers to scripture right so it's very important to be able to have a scriptural answer for a spiritual question, and that's what he does. So there's the amazed and the perplexed, but you have also the mocking. So when you're sharing with people of the things of the Lord, there will be sometimes someone who's interested, and there'll be sometimes people who are just not. And I learned a long time ago in, in ministry that I will speak to the ones who are interested and those who are not, then I just I won't I won't take the time to to try to answer them, and I'll discover that usually within the first two or three minutes of our conversation. There was a time when people would approach me, wanting to argue. They don't do that anymore. Not that they won't, but they just haven't in a, in a long time. But they would at the beginning. They would come and they want to argue. They brought their their uh, their questions and all, and and so as a as a minister who wants to be able to answer. The questions I would, I, would, begin, I would begin to answer, and then they'd have a second question. And then I finally discovered, and this was a pattern, I discovered that a lot of times people don't want answers, they want argument. And so I, I developed a technique. I haven't had to use it in a long time, but I would still use it. And it's a very simple. When it's this, they'd say to me, I'd like you to tell me how come. And my, my response was very basic. I'd say, are you asking a question or are you looking for an argument? Which is it that you want? Well, I want an answer. I said, oh, okay, then you want an answer. So it's a legitimate question? Yes. Then let me ask you this. Will you allow me to finish my sentence before you break in? And then I'll see you later. Because that they weren't wanting to talk. They wanted to argue. And when you're young, as I have been, um, sometimes you sharpen your sword in debate. And, and I get it. You you want to learn how the answers apply and responses. I get it. I've done that. But well, when you're older, you just, you, you learn to discern. And this is important for all of us, by the way. You share your faith. All you need to ask the person is, do you want an answer or do you want an argument? And they'll tell you up front. I mean, you know, thank God for honest people who will do that. So if they say to me, I want to argue, I'll say, you know, I really don't feel like arguing, you know. And that's the way it is. I won't go there. I don't argue. Man of God is not to argue. So I don't. I just say, you know what? Go to hell. No, I don't say that. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. (laughs) Jesus said, cast not your pearls to swine. If you're wanting to trample me underfoot, I'm not going to hand you an answer for it. I'm not going to arm you for that. But if you want to talk, I'm here. And that's how it works. So who does the apostle concentrate on to those who are interested in, to those who want to know? He doesn't speak to those who are mocking directly. He speaks to the inquisitive, and he gives a biblical answer. So he says, they're not drunken. These are people who are under the spirit of God's influence. And under his influence, they are speaking concerning his wonderful works. You see, at the beginning on Pentecost, the church desperately needed the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more so now as we're ending the age of the church, perhaps even in our generation, do we need the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, we're aware of how dark things are. We need the power of God. We need to seek His power to be able to communicate. We need to repent of anything that keeps us from receiving of the Lord in these last days. And, and we ought to be cultivating a hunger and a desire not only to know but, but to serve Him and obey Him. And, and by faith, we ought to be saying, God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus in Luke eleven thirteen 13 said it like this. He said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. When I was a little boy, my father and my mother had their room. It was their room. It was their private room. We didn't just barge in. We actually had to knock on the door if they were in it so we could gain permission to enter. That's how it was when I grew up. They didn't. They owned the whole house, but that was their special place for just them. And mom and dad in the morning would, they would, daddy would read the newspaper on a Saturday or a Sunday, and he'd have a cup of coffee. And so when I was growing up, I, uh, I, I, I saw that as a practice. My dad had that. I thought was was just endearing to me. And then one day when I was about six or seven maybe, he said, David, go get me my coffee. Now I had watched watched my mom as she prepared coffee for my dad. Mama would uh, give my dad his coffee every morning before he went to work. And so I knew he took it with a couple of uh, teaspoons of sugar and black and this uh, just with no milk. I knew how he did it. So he had this cup, his coffee cup. It was a holy cup. And I can still remember going in and taking it and taking the uh, the pot uh, and pouring the coffee in it and then very carefully so I didn't spill a drop, I remember walking across from the kitchen through the front room into the little hallway there into his room and I handed him his coffee and I thought, man, I'm, I'm a big boy now. I served my dad his coffee and my dad says, thank you, son, you may go now. No, my dad said, thank you, son, and he takes a drink and spits it out. I thought, what happened? Well, my mom had taken a paper towel with coffee grounds and had put it in his cup, and I didn't know, and I never looked into it. I just filled it up, and I brought it. So when Dad took his drink, all these coffee grounds were coming out of his mouth. And I learned a lesson when I could finally sit down again. No, I learned a lesson... (laughs) You never pour something into a dirty cup. Hmm? Oh, God, fill me with your spirit, but I still want to fornicate. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit, but I like my alcohol. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit, but I love to gossip. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit, but I'm still angry at people. Oh, God, fill me with... Why would God pour his spirit into a dirty vessel? So what do we do? God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner and I'm going to remain a dirty vessel until you purge this from my heart. God, help me. You see, when I first got saved, that's what I was taught. And it wasn't just a matter of like begging God either. He said, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, one last illustration and then close. I got saved. I'm 20 years old. I used to... In that day, we, were, we used to just party all the time. Now I'm saved, and instead of going to parties, we're now going to church, right? And so we used to live in a time when people say, there's a party here, and we'd all jump in our car and go, there's a party over here. That's what we did all the time. But now we're being told, there's a Bible study over here, and we'd jump in our car, and off we'd go. That's how it worked with me. So there was a quote-unquote revival taking place in a small church in Long Beach, off of Cherry. And we went to this particular revival. And I'm a brand new Christian. I want all of God I can have. And it's an African American church, but it had a white evangelist. And the white evangelist had one of these hairdos that he sprayed like a can of hairspray on and formed it to look kind of like a, a bullet. And he had a set of drums at at the base of the platform. And whenever the spirit came all over him, he would jump off the platform and get on and start playing drums. And then someone said, at my church, we march around the church behind a flag. So there was a Christian flag, and somebody grabbed it. And before you know it, I'm marching around the church, you know, having a great time. I mean, you know, it's the first time I did anything like that without being drunk. You know, I was pretty excited. I don't know if this is right or wrong. We're just doing it as unto the Lord. And so finally, they say, if you want to receive the power of the Spirit, and they always emphasize, the power of the Spirit, come on up. I do. So I go up, and I'm kneeling there. at the. They had what they used to call the tarrying bench. Some churches still do. And you would tarry on the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm looking at these other people. There's a line of us, and I was raised Catholic. And these guys are Protestants. And we knelt for 40 minutes. But I said within myself, I can out-kneel any Protestant. (laughs) And I did. Nothing happened, so I'm going, I don't know what I was supposed to expect. But the guy had said, just cry out to God. And and we're all, God, fill me, God, help me, God. We were yelling. That's what he told us to do. Then he says, get up and give testimony. And I'm thinking, oh, no. I, and so I get up. I still remember standing in line. And people would get behind them, And they'd say, oh, the heavens opened and dove fell on me. And I'm thinking, oh, nothing, no, nothing happened. <laughs> and and I, I still remember, God, help me. I don't want to lie in church. You, 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 I don't want to pretend something happened. Nothing happened. Give me words. I don't know what to do. And I still remember just moving. And it's kind of like you hear, dum-dum-dum-dum, you're going to get your head cut <laughs> off. And, and I remember doing this. And finally, I'm looking at this small group of people that are looking back at me. And I said this, I'll never forget. I looked at them, they looked back, and I said, I cannot put into words what I just experienced. <laughs> that was true. And It's funny. Because they looked back at me like, yeah, nothing happened to us either. It was one of those, it was one of those moments, you know, I'm going, oh, what are you going to do, right? Skipped on off the platform. See, Jesus didn't say beg. He didn't say scream. He said ask. Ask. Uh, I didn't raise perfect children, neither did my mom and dad. But they still gave me good gifts, and I still gave them good gifts. Why? Because they're my children. And they were asking, I need help. Does a daddy help a child who's in need? Absolutely, to the best of your ability. That's what you do. Yes, I will help you, and yes, I will give you good gifts. Good gifts, not just gifts, good gifts that will help you in your life to become a better person. Yes, absolutely, I'm willing to do that. How much more so would my heavenly Father desire to give me good gifts that will make me a better representative of his kingdom? We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, not to go out performing miracles, but so that we can live in a world that hates Jesus, in a world that will not listen to the gospel. We need his power, transformed lives, anointed speech through his anointed word, to see people transformed These men and others were to go throughout the world proclaiming a message that changes lives. And God said, I've given you the message and I've given you the power. Now you need to do it. And that took place on Pentecost Sunday, the day that we're celebrating even right now. God, we need your powerful spirit. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.